Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Father, I ask for your help now as we try to unfold this word faithfully. I pray for hearts that are Lydia-like, opened to give heed to the gospel. And I pray for a special anointing so that I don't speak any error and so that there's a biblical balance and proportion to what I say and a razor-sharp edge that severs calluses that are hindering hearing and understanding. And I pray that it would be sharper than a two-edged sword and penetrate to the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and leave none of us unchanged and some of us believing for the first time and saved. Sustain your people by this word, I pray, and gather in your people by this word and glorify your name by this word and mobilize witness with this word. Heal marriages with this word. Bring children home with this word. Give guidance with this word. Remove loneliness with this word. Take depression and darkness off of hearts with this word. And 10,000 other blessings that you have in mind with your extraordinary grace over this word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're coming to the end now of this long indictment that began back at chapter 1, verse 18, remember? And continues on through verse 20. So we have one more week of indictment. And uh, then comes Easter. And then we enter into about six years of gospel. But notice the summary statement of the indictment. Verse 9, at the second half of the verse, we have already charged, and so he's thinking back over these three chapters, and all he's done to prove this, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, under sin. And what he means by Jews and Greeks is everybody. I know Jews and Greeks doesn't sound like everybody, but 
Jews is a unique category, and then when you look outside to non-Jews, the term Greeks really was used, I think, because this is the best representative you can get, it was thought, outside Israel. And so if they don't come out from under sin, nobody comes out from under sin. And so Jews and Greeks, meaning everybody, is under sin. Now, this is a weighty truth, really weighty. It's one of those great truths that the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to hold up like a pillar because it says in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church of Jesus Christ, the church of the living God, is the pillar and bulwark or foundation of the truth. So picture a pillar like the one that Samson perhaps pushed over so the building fell. Picture a pillar holding up a building, and the building is truth. And one of the truths that the church, as the pillar, in the modern day, 20th century, America, Uganda, wherever, is to hold up, is the truth that everybody is under sin. We don't just do sins... We are under sin. It is like a slave master. It's like a power on us, in us, holding us down, corrupting us from the inside out. I am aware and you are aware that it is a great and glorious truth that we also hold up that everybody in this room is created in the image of God. And that's what makes sin such a tragedy and a travesty of humanity. That it corrupts us to the core and it holds us down and it ruins everything. And we must hold up this truth before the world. Paul in uh, Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, We are by nature children of wrath. The feelings that we have, the thoughts that we have, the actions that we do, Deserve wrath to such a degree that it is our nature to deserve wrath. Or Colossians 3.2, he says, we were sons of disobedience. Disobedience comes so naturally to us and is so much a part of our inner nature, it's as though disobedience were our father. We are chips off the old block of disobedience. That's our condition, as Paul describes it here and sums it up in verse 9. All Jews, all Greeks, all of us are under sin. Now, this is not a popular message. Is it? Understandably not a popular message. It's no more popular than if you were to go to the doctor after having your ultrasound and hear him say, your tumor is malignant. That is not a popular message. But this message, you are all under sin. You are all corrupt by nature is vastly more hopeful than that message from the doctor. Because 
you don't know whether that message can be fixed. Maybe a surgery and some chemo will do it. And maybe not. But this message, this diagnosis, you are all, I am under sin. We have a remedy for this. There is a remedy for this, and it is without fail for any who will have it. So my message, my diagnosis, while in one sense being vastly worse, is vastly more hopeful. And as I was preparing this, I was thinking, now this is not a popular message. Nobody wants to hear a sermon on Romans 3, 9 to 18. Nevertheless, I felt welling up inside of me, this message, if God were to come, could be an unbelievably hope-giving message. Because, ask yourself this, the way I feel anyway, is it not profoundly hope-filled and satisfying to have someone who knows you to the absolute core of your life, who knows the worst things about you that nobody else knows, knows you to the bottom of all your deceit and all your evil and all your duplicity and all your bad attitudes and all your half-heartedness and tells you he knows that and then follows it with, I love you. And I can make this right with God and with everybody else. I mean, I tell you, that is so vastly more satisfying than somebody who solicits for your immediate feelings, puts little placebos before you and says nice things about you, lest you have a little bit of discouragement or come into some fear. That may feel good for a little moment. Whew, I can feel good about myself for another day. That's not satisfying. We know it's not. And it's not kind either. It's no more kind than a doctor who's cutting his eyes to the left and he's cutting his eyes to the right and he won't look you in the face and he won't tell you the truth about your cancer in a curable stage. That may make you happy for six months. And then you pay. Is that nice? Is that Minnesota nice? It's not nice of any kind. It's cruel. And so... Oh, that you might find, welling up in your heart, even as I unfold the diagnosis, yes, go ahead, go ahead, say it like it is. I know more than you know, Pastor John. Go ahead, tell me about it. And then tell me, tell me he loves me, and tell me there's a remedy here for this. If you'll do that, if you give me the whole picture, I'll let you talk to me like this. I'll get close to this mirror of the word. I have two questions about this text. The first one is, how in these verses 9 to 18 of Romans 3, 
Does Paul support his point that we are all under sin by quoting these six Old Testament texts? That's what they are. They are a string of quotations from Psalms and Isaiah. And my question is, how does it work? You see, I could pass over this problem here. I've got a problem here. You don't have a problem yet. You're going to have a problem in just a minute. I've got a problem here, and I could pass over this. I've got to teach preaching tomorrow morning. These guys are going to ask me, why would you bring up that problem? Why is that the way you did it? Here's why I do it. I could make this sermon a lot easier to preach by not bringing up this problem, because you wouldn't know this problem exists. You'd just breeze through this text and take the bad news, take the good news, go home, feel justified. And you would be. But you know what? Somebody's going to bring up this problem one day and knock the legs out from under this text for you. And if I don't deal with the problems that I see, I'm a jerk. I think I'm a hypocrite as a preacher. I know there are problems in this text. I'm not going to tell them the problems because there's kids here. I don't want to create problems for these kids. And then someday they go off to college. Week after week, the preacher never told them about the problems. The preacher never gave them possible solutions to the problems. And the first class they're in, all they hear is problems. And why the Bible just can't stand. Here's the problem. Paul says, Jews and Greeks, everybody are under sin. As it is written, and then he quotes these texts. And the first one he quotes is from Psalm 14. First three verses of Psalm 14 in verses 10 11 and 12. Let's read them. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's simple. That's straightforward, isn't it? Here's the problem. This Psalm 14 begins that way, but it doesn't end that way. It begins with David looking out on the enemies of the people of God and saying, There's none righteous, no, not one. And they're coming against the afflicted of the Lord, the generation of the righteous. Whoa. Wait a minute. You just said... There's none righteous, no, not one. And we've been quoting that all these years, Paul, because you quoted it that way. And now at the end of the psalm, it says, the enemies of God are coming against the generation of the righteous. So how can you use Psalm 14 to support your point if Psalm 14 has one group in whom there's no righteous and another group that you're calling, or David is calling, Righteous. Your proof is not very good. That's the problem. What's the answer? And of course, you know, it's it, there are righteous people all over the place in the Old Testament, right? I mean, the Psalms are filled with the wicked and the righteous, the wicked and the righteous. And here he is saying there's none righteous. And he's quoting the psalm to do it, in which it says there are righteous. He's no dummy. 
Paul is not a dummy. He read the psalm. He knows what he's talking about. So how does, how does, how does this chain of six Old Testament quotes, five from Psalms, one from Isaiah, function to make the support work? And here's my effort at an answer. He doesn't mean for every one of these quotations by itself to carry the whole weight of the argument. He means for all of them together, properly understood in their Old Testament context, to carry the argument. So how do they do that? I mean, Paul knows good and well about the righteous in the Old Testament. In fact, well, I don't know how many verses would it be. Just a few verses later, in chapter 4, verse 3, he's going to say, quoting Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for what? Abraham, before David ever wrote those Psalms, followed by a whole history of saints, believed God and they were reckoned righteous. And thus were, in that sense, righteous. So Paul knows, even as he quotes Psalm 14 to the effect, there's none righteous. No, not one. He knows there's a qualifier on that, namely, that if you reckon somebody righteous from God, if God reckons somebody righteous by faith, they're not any longer in that category. But that doesn't call into question necessarily the fact that by nature, we are all righteous. But... He hasn't shown that yet from the Psalms, which is what I think he wants to do. So we still have the question. So we look further down and see what else he's saying here. Where did he get it? Now, most of these other quotations from this Psalms are treating the enemies of God and dealing with them. And it's hard to tell whether they are Jews or Gentiles, but one of them is crystal clear, namely the quote from Isaiah 59, 7 to 8. And that's quoted in verses 15 to 17. Let me give you the context of Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, 2 says, Israel, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. He's talking to Israel now, the people of God, the chosen race. Then you get to Isaiah 59, 7, and that's quoted here. Let's read Romans 3, 15 following. Their feet, Jewish feet, are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. Now, that's just a general statement in Isaiah's day about the people of God, Jewish people. And all the other texts here are general statements, could be Jews, could be Gentiles. And so what you have is a real clear statement about the the enemies of the people of God in verse 10, 11, and 12. There's none righteous. And what you have in verses 15 and 17 is you got all these Jewish people who are by nature walking in paths of unrighteousness. And you have Paul aware that in those two groups of unrighteous people, there are those upon whom 
the sovereign grace of God has wrought faith, forgiveness, and justification so that they are now righteous. Now, is there a clue, I asked myself, in these Psalms, not Genesis 15, 6, way back then, but in these Psalms that he's quoting, that he has in mind that the only people that are escaping from the indictment of unrighteousness are people who have been by God's special, sovereign, saving grace drawn out of that mass of corruption and made right with God. And I think there is a clue. Romans 13, 13, their throat is an open grave, is a quote from Psalm 5. So I read Psalm 5 just to see how David was understanding himself in relation to this. Did he mean uh, my throat is an open grave? Or was he just talking about somebody else? Well, he was talking about somebody else. Their throat is an open grave. But Paul or David, let's ask David, if, if you're pointing that their throat is an open grave, what about your throat? If you're going to make a point here that all are under sin, and then you're going to quote these texts, including Psalm 5, verses 7 and 8 here. How, does, how do you figure in? This is what he says about himself in the psalm. But as for me, as for me, and he talks to God, your mercy... By your mercy, I will enter into your house, O Lord. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. Now, do you hear how David is thinking about himself here? David has said in Psalm 51, I was born in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51 verse 5. He knows he is by nature corrupt. But now he says, by mercy, by free, sovereign, gracious, transforming mercy, I have been plucked out of that mass of corruption and I have been led to the house of God and I know that it's only mercy, not nature, that got me there. So even Paul's own description of himself as those as one who's not among the mass of the corrupt is evidence that he too is among the mass. Because only mercy gets him to the house of God. And then for living his life, he says, oh, lead me. In other words, if you don't lead me, I'm back into the mess. Make my way straight before me, because if you don't make it straight, I'm going crooked. I'm wired that way. That's who I am. I'm David. I've done it all. I know me. I've been this way from my mother's womb. So, my answer to the first question, how does Paul support the general overarching statement that everybody is under sin, is that it's not just one of these texts that he puts together. It's all of them. Gentiles, unrighteous. Jews walking in the paths of unrighteousness, 
David himself, though a righteous man before God, is wicked by nature and has to be by mercy drawn to the Lord and justified by faith alone. And so the the point here is not to contradict justification by faith in the Old Testament taught so clearly, and which Paul one chapter later will affirm with all his heart. The point is to say, apart from saving grace, apart from the wooing work of God to rescue us from our corruption, there is none righteous. No, not one. That's answer to question number one. Number two. Now, this one is not a problem. This is simply a question, okay, if he has defended his point in this way about all of us being under sin, how does he open it for us? How does he explain it? How does he describe being under sin? What is it like to be under sin? What do you mean by being under sin? If that's the way everybody in this room is, what is it? And I want to give you three brief observations in answer to this question. Number one, being under sin is first and foremost the ruin of our relation with God. The ruin of our relation with God. Now I get this by looking at the way the text begins and ends. Because usually when you're putting a string of things together, you begin and end with the most important. And I think that's the case here. Read verses 10 to 11 with me. There is none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's none who seeks God. There's God. That's what it means to be under sin. You don't seek God when you're under sin. Verse 18, he ends it this way. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So there's God again. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So from the beginning of the text, no one seeks him. And therefore, no one understands him. And therefore, verse 18 at the end, no one fears him. That's what it means to be under sin. Being under sin is about God. It's about how we've been ruined in our relationship with God. Sin has to do with God, first and foremost, not with man. This is a truth that the world misses in a big way. It's mainly a condition of rebellion against God and not a condition of how we treat each other, though that's coming in just a minute. This is why it is so sad, so sad, how many people say, I'm a pretty good person. They look around at other people, they watch the way other people treat other people, And then they look at their own lives and they say, I'm a pretty good person. Now, what's so sad about that is that that's an irrelevant observation that ignores the true nature of sin. Because their minds mean I don't kill anybody. I don't steal from anybody. I don't lie much. Just little teeny, teeny lies that don't hurt anybody. I don't sleep around. 
I give to charities. I earn a good living for my family. I'm a pretty good person. All of it horizontal. Ignoring God. And thus, disdaining the most important person in the universe. And thus being worthy of damnation. As pretty good people. That's what's so sad about America. We're all pretty good people. Godless, pretty good, hell-bound people. The question for such a person is, do you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? And do you love his son, Jesus Christ? And esteem him above all things and reverence him and enjoy his fellowship. Now, how many pretty good people would say, yes. Sin is first and foremost a resistance to finding joy in God. Sin is first and foremost a resistance to finding joy in God. Because I've got joy in my new entertainment center. And I just want peaceful evenings to spend there. I want my job to be left at work. I want a nice long vacation. I want a secure retirement. I want 911 and I want some cancer for years in my den. And I'll have this joy you're talking about. There's this resistance to seeking God. No one seeks God unless God awakens an incredible hunger that this den is deadly. So, Sin is about God. That's my first observation. And woe to us if we only measure ourselves by the pretty good people who ignore God around us. Second observation. Sin, being under sin, ruins our relation with people. He doesn't leave it out. It's important. It's not the main thing, but it's really important. Verses 13 and 14. How do our words ruin our relations? Verses 15 to 17. How do our actions ruin our relations? Look at the first unit. Throat, tongue, lips, mouth. You see that in verses 13 and 14? Throat. Watch it proceed from the heart. Throat. Tongue, lips, mouth. Here it comes. Out of the abundance of the heart, the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, and we condemn ourselves. You'll be justified by your words and you'll be condemned by your words because out of the heart, out of the fullness and overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So let's read this awful description of our mouths. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. 
The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. What's the point there? Graves have to do with death. Poison produces death. So deception and cursing are deathly. They are deadly. Oh, may this diagnosis of our lives make us want to be saved. Oh, may this diagnosis of our lives make us want to be redeemed in our tongues and have our mouths changed. Because God didn't make the mouth to be like this, did he? What does the proverb say? See how many of you know this proverb? The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of what? Life. A few of you know it. Life. The mouth of the righteous gives life. The throat is not a grave. It's life-giving. Tongue doesn't have poison under it. It has refreshment under it. It has medicine under it. Don't you want to be the kind of person who when you walk into a group, they want you to talk because when you talk, people get well. Isn't that what you want to be? A sage, a life giver. I tell you, people want people like that to come into their midst, even if they have to begin with this kind of sermon. Because it makes people well in the end. You don't want to be the kind of person where they say, we don't really want to be around that person because they're so incredibly negative. Negative, negative, negative. Criticism, criticism, criticism. Belly ache, belly ache, belly ache. Deliver me from this throat of grave clothes. You don't want to be like that. And so, listen to the diagnosis and heed the remedy. That's the mouth. Sin ruins the mouth and it ruins relations with the mouth, doesn't it? I mean, more damage is done in a marriage with the mouth than with any, anything sexual or anything financial. It's done with the mouth 99% of the time. Either the shut mouth or the open mouth. Not saying what needs to be said and saying what does not need to be said. We kill each other at home. Kids. The people we love most, we hurt most. With our horrid mouths. The second group is about actions. Verses 15 to 17. What does under sin mean? It means their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace they do not know. Bloodshedding, destruction, misery, peace destroyers. That's what happens when God is not Sought, found, loved, trusted, and reverenced. 
We are broken at the action level as well as the word level. You might say, I don't kill anybody. I don't shed blood. You know why you don't? Police. Prisons, electric chairs, societal expectations, fear. That's the only reason. Until your heart is changed. You can see this evidenced in the world over and over again with countries or cities where the infrastructure collapses. Tell me what happens. The first thing that happens is Looting. We don't steal. We don't steal in this country. We're law-abiding. Right. Take away the laws. Take away the police. Take away the laws. Take away the consequences. All the windows broken. And we will kill. Jesus said we do kill. We kill with our anger. He knew, he knows what would happen if the external constraints of his common grace were removed from our wicked hearts. We'd kill each other. We would take vengeance on every offense and probably to the limit if there were no consequences. Guaranteed. So I'm not so sure that we can evict ourselves from this word so easily. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery is in their paths, and the path of peace they do not know. Being under sin means first, our relationship with God is ruined, we don't seek Him, we don't know Him, and we don't reverence Him. It's all like chapter 1, we hold down the truth about God in our unrighteousness, and we trade His glory away for other things, and we are handed over to a depraved mind, so that now we don't approve to have Him in our knowledge anymore. And we don't want Him, and we don't know Him, and we don't reverence Him, but we're pretty good people. And then... Our relationships start to go bad. Goes bad at home, goes bad at work, goes bad at school. And we're only kept from anarchy and chaos by the common grace of God restraining us in various wonderful ways. That's point number two. Human relations get ruined. And the last point is, if this is true, if you're with me to this point, then maybe you'll let me close like this. In fact, maybe you'll beg me to close like this. If this is true, that from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 18, we're guilty. We're really guilty. John Piper, by nature, is a killer, and a liar, a stealer, and an adulterer. And a blasphemer by nature. That's who I am. And God, in the great mercy with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ Jesus, parenthesis, by grace are you saved.
This is the gospel. The gospel, and I close with this now. This is Christianity. If you came into this room and you wonder, can you sum Christianity up in two minutes? I'm going to do it. Christianity is first deliver the word that I just gave you for the last 30 minutes. Deliver that word because that's the diagnosis. Christianity, we're just centimeters away from it. So why don't we just let our eyes drop down to it, okay? Verses 21 and 22. Chapter 3, Romans. We're so close, I can hardly wait. But now, now, after all these chapters of indictment, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, which we could never live up to, which we could never perform, which we could never create, which we could never earn, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. What, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? Is it damning me? Is it crushing me? Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Here's Christianity. Christianity is God moving upon people to bring them to the point where they will hear that offer of free righteousness and say, I'm done with all self-salvation. I'm done with every form of trying to save myself. I'm done with claims that I'm not so bad after all and that I'm a pretty good person. I'm done with that. And I am looking away from myself now to one who bore in his body on the cross my unrighteousness and my poisonous tongue and my grave-like throat and my murderous feet. I'm done and I embrace him and I trust him and I receive the promise of righteousness freely given by God which can clothe me like asbestos so that I pass through the flames of final judgment and enter into eternal life made new with my God forever and ever and ever and ever. That's Christianity. And I beseech you on behalf of Jesus Christ be reconciled to God this morning I plead with you do not stay in the condition that I've described here God has come and made a way out the cancer can be cured and it is free no $80,000 chemo treatments except what Jesus paid for on the cross. Oh God, I pray for these people right now as they go that if things in their lives are falling down, if they walked in here and they didn't feel like there was anything but quicksand anywhere, oh God, rise under them. And be a rock for them now. Grant that everyone would believe and receive righteousness freely from you. You're dismissed.